Well, if you would, please turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 127. Psalm chapter 127. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible today. find ourselves in the song of ascents. Psalm 127 verse 1 reads this, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For he gives to his beloved, even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gates. Several years ago, a comment on the internet went viral. The comment was from a 46-year-old, very financially secured banker. And he had talked about his life in this comment that it was all for nothing. He had said this, all my dreams, my passion, gone. In a steady 9 to 7 p.m. job, six days a week, for 26 years, Today I found out that my wife has been cheating on me for the last 10 years. My son feels nothing towards me. I realized I missed out on my father's funeral for no reason. If my younger self had met me today, I would have punched myself in the face. Now we don't want to encourage anybody here to do that, but we do want to encourage you to reflect upon the word of God today. And the title of the message today is to reflect upon the Word of God so that you can depend on God in Christian life and for a Christian legacy. Isn't that what you want, beloved? If you're not here, or if you're here today and you're a friend and not a believer in Jesus Christ, there's no hope for a Christian life, for a Christian legacy. And you're going to end up like that man at 46 years old, all for nothing. But that can begin today through faith. We want to begin by understanding that we have a Christian life to live in verses 1 through 2, and it's to depend on God in our Christian life. How do we live in God's providence to avoid a pointless existence? That's the question before us that's answered in verses 1 through 2. Begin with me in verse 1, a song of ascents of Solomon. What do we know about the song of ascents? Well, we know that chapters 120 through 134, containing in the book of Psalms, is book 5. There's 15 total, and Psalm 127 arrives at the pinnacle of that in the very middle. Three times a year during the Jewish festival processions, they would go on a journey up to the town of David, the city of David, of Jerusalem. It was 2,700 feet in elevation, and they would sing these psalms in their journey. W. Graham Scroge points out in these psalms, as nowhere else in the Psalter, domestic fruitfulness and felicity are extolled. These would be sung antiphonally. 
the change of persons that we see in Psalm 127 and the other Psalms of Ascent are that, that they show a change in direction from answering and responding to two different audiences. And we see that Solomon in Psalm 127 wants us to reflect on a life without God and consider a life without God emptiness. Christian work without God is empty. Secular work without God is empty. And raising a family without God is empty. But we want to have meaning in our life as believers of the word of God. So we continue on and look at Solomon as he ultimately celebrates the temple that was in succession to him upon David. What do we know about Solomon? Solomon is one who, through a lot of rubbish in his own life, gives us the answers to questions like, who will this work be glorifying? What is the purpose of having children? Will my 20s be a waste? Who will my heritage and defenders be when I get old? And should I pursue a career more than a family? God's providence and sovereignty is summed up in this through having God a part of our life. Solomon, who reigned for 40 years from 970 to 930 B.C., was the son of David. And David made many mistakes. Solomon started his career and his home life with the blessing of God to build the temple and build a palace for himself and later ended in a palace of rubbish, divided between two regions. We see that Solomon knew the lineage and the legacy of his father through many concubines, through dividing his attention between different women, something that no Christian man should do in his life. Yet Solomon repeated the effects of his own father after having the blessing of the Lord. And you and I can stop it where our life begins today, that we don't need to repeat the past failures of our line and lineage. Through this story, we can live a new life, a better life that is full of meaning and purpose for our life and our legacy. Let that be something that we learn from Psalm 127 today and through the context that is just brought out through Scripture to tell us about what Solomon did wrong. Solomon, built within his name, is very interesting. It's actually a surname. The name would be better translated, the peace of his father. It's a surname for David bestowing a son upon earth that would bring a legacy of peace. We have 11 chapters that talk about a a very peaceful, united monarchy under Solomon, built with wisdom and for the glory of God. Yet Solomon, like I said before, wandered where his dad had wandered. Solomon was going out at night when he shouldn't. He was having multiple concubines like his father where he shouldn't. Solomon was affected by the legacy of the home that was built around him. Solomon had 12 siblings that we know of in Jerusalem, many more that we don't know about in all the towns where his father had set up concubines. But Solomon was to succeed David at the beginning of his life with wisdom. This psalm points to that kind of life of wisdom, depending upon God and our Christian life and our Christian legacy. So let us continue to look at Psalm 127 with that context in mind and build that Christian life and that Christian legacy for our lives and homes with purpose, not to be pointless. It says in verse 1 of Psalm 127, unless the Lord, be better translated, if without the Lord, 
we should all be asking ourselves a question. If my life is without the Lord, what's the point? For those who have spent several years of their life living without the Lord, you remember the total depravity and state that you lived in. The miry muck that you withdrew to constantly. Are we living a lie is what Solomon is asking us. Built within the root of this word is in Genesis 3.13 the idea of being deceived. Are we deceived by living a life without the Lord? This is saying the Lord builds the house based on our theology. Not based on the strength of man. What's being caused in this is the effect of what we do and who we bring into our life is either causing God to reign or causing the strength of men to reign. It says, builds the house, unless the Lord builds the house. Solomon gives an insider's view. Built within the language here is the idea that he's taking you into the situation as it unfolds. And he tells us this, that our life is dependent and contingent upon our cooperation with the Lord. If we have a life outside of the will of God, we can't depend upon favorable circumstances of blessing as we get into in verse 5 until our cooperation begins. We need to look at the Old Testament and look at the New Testament and look at those verses that are conditional. If, 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 if without the Lord, I'm going to end up in a pointless existence. But if I'm with the Lord, there will be meaning to my life and to my legacy. So as we look at these actions unfolding in Solomon's life in verse 1, we want to ask the question, what house is he talking about? There's been much conjecture in the house of Solomon or on an individual house, and I believe this is a both-and situation. This word would have been used multiple times in the Old Testament for the corporate house, yes, the temple in relation to Solomon and what he built for national Israel. The structures that were built primarily at Yahweh's disposal and timing. We see this word used far more to any other structure, the structure of Solomon's temple, than anywhere else in the Old Testament. David's desire to build the temple was one that would not be fulfilled, yet through the legacy that he would have in Solomon, it would be built. David's failed attempts at military accolades were the reason why God would not give that to him. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 17, and 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8. But we understand that God is behind the timing, the place, and the person that will build his temple for the corporate house of God and for our individual homes. We see this also used for the idea of the city that was behind the city of David. In fact, in 1 Kings 9, verse 15, we see this kind of word used for an acropolis that Solomon built up through tons of effort and time and nights and labor and decisions called Milo in the Hebrew in 1 Kings 9, verse 15. And this was the legacy that Solomon was building. God chose Solomon to build this legacy of corporate temple worship for God under the blessing of him for a period of time. But we understand it didn't end well. And we understand this about Solomon's life, that the building of the temple only makes as much sense as the expression of obedience towards God in that temple. 
for you and I, we have to understand today that this building only makes sense as much as we're going to obey God in our life and in our legacy. We need to take a sobering moment and understand the charge and the reflection that Solomon's giving us and see that the dynasty that we're building needs to be the dynasty of God. Dr. Barak, Hebrew professor at Master Seminary, says this, the dynasty, the house of David, declined in stability, unity, wealth, power, and influence during Rehoboam's brief reign. That was his legacy. Well, we move on from corporate house to also the, uh, and the cities that built up the houses of the city of David to the individual house. What about our homes? Yes, it includes that as well. The raising of family is often referenced in this word for house throughout the Old Testament, the building of the family. The individual responsibility of each household to bring pure worship to the temple being built by Solomon and for us, the temple here that we worship in this building, but ultimately the temple of God is within each one of us. We understand that our homes are a result of corporate worship. Individual worship leads to corporate worship, and we need to build families that depend upon God. We saw Solomon in his early life in 1 Kings chapter 2 begin a life that was building upon God for his temple and for his personal home. How did he go about doing that? Maybe not the way that you and I would do that in the beginning, but he had some instructions from his father, and a good son obeys the instructions of his father's will. First, he cleaned house. He killed Adoniah, who had intentions to kill David, and then was most likely going to try to kill Solomon as well. He killed Joab, who had the same intentions to murder Solomon. And then Shimei, who he was a little questionable about how his influence would be in his temple and in his home. Remember, bad company corrupts good morals. Solomon gave him a test. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 36 through 46 to test his allegiance of being faithful to Solomon's word, and he didn't pass the test. So we learned that Solomon, as he built his corporate house and his individual house, he wanted to go about doing things God's way, not man's way. He wanted to make sure that we learn everyone is not meant to lead, only those who will follow the Lord. And he wanted us to learn that sometimes you need to remove the rot out of your home before you can serve the Lord. Chapter 3 of 1 Kings, we see that he builds his home off of a good marriage and seeking the Lord to bless his marriage. He seeks the Lord for the blessing of his life and for his labor and for his wife and for his marriage and prays for discernment. And he gets that blessing, but the blessing is under a condition, verse 14 of chapter 3, 1 Kings 3.14, if you walk in my ways keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. So there's that if conditional clause for us as we build our Christian lives, as we build our Christian legacy, if we walk in his ways, not ours. Then what does he do with the house of the Lord in 1 Kings chapter 8? He dedicates it to Yahweh. And Yahweh fills it with blessings. But a short time later, after an influence of the Queen of Sheba, and the influence of so many other kingdoms he wanted a part of, we see that Solomon lets it get divided. It shows us that as he reflects on it in Psalm 127, verse 1, 
Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Who built it? He lived that. He learned it. Now we need to learn it. The labor he's talking about is an exertion in life, not necessarily just individual employment, but it's giving us the idea of looking outward now. As we look inside of our life, the 30, 40, 50 years of labor that we have, will we look inside of that from an outward perspective and say, this was pointless. This occurs predominantly over 75% of the time in the book of Ecclesiastes. This idea of exerting oneself for the sake of pointless existence. And this word vain is the first of three occurrences in this passage. But it's not the same word we get in the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes uses the word havel, actually from the root of Abel. Remember, Cain and Abel, Abel's life went like that. As his mother, or his brother, not his mother, his brother murdered him. His life was like a breath in the wind. It came and went. And that's what Solomon says about our lives, if we're not building it upon the Lord. This is a different word, though. It's saw, the idea of valueless and futile living. It's used in Psalm 26, verse 4, to convey the idea of sitting with deceitful men. The word for deceitful there is vain. Nor will I go with the pretenders, he finishes Psalm 26, verse 4. It's in that beginning idea that we got in Ecclesiastes. But what kind of effort is he talking about? Well, Solomon gives us a commentary on this exact kind of predicament in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 4. And he reads this, or uh, chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I enlarged my work. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers in the pleasure of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased. I mean, he was a big shot. Increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, Santan Bible Church, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was no profit under the sun. All that he did, one of the greatest, wisest men to build a kingdom, saw it as like a breath of the wind. It came and went. What about us? What about our lives? Some of us are on that later stage and we can look back and think about the investments we made, the investments we tried to guard and keep, the work that we tirelessly went forth with, and we look at it and say, what a waste. But there's time for us to redeem that. And for those who are younger, start off right and finish strong to building that legacy. Because Rehoboam, the legacy of Solomon 
didn't get it right either as he divided the kingdom between the north and Israel. For Israel and the south of Judah, the kingdom was divided and no longer peaceful and united again. We don't want to be sons like that. We want to reflect upon this and say, are we too inside of our work to take a seat back and look at it from an outward perspective and see what does God want us to change in our lives? Alan Ross, the commentator on the psalm, talks about the metonymity of cause that's brought out here. And he says, what causes God to build our house? And he comes up with five answers. He says this, we cause God to build our house when people build it by faith in the Lord's provision. When we cause the building to be by his will. When we cause it by a pleasing way to him, honest and fair. When we cause by a desire to dedicate it to his use and purpose, to give glory to him for accomplishment, end quote. Are we bringing all of those things to the cause and purpose of our life? Any work that is not handed over to the Lord will work us over. The word biblical commentary says this, labor is a matter of collaboration with God. Are we collaborating, beloved and friends, we need to be collaborators with God in the life that we're building. Well, it continues on. Not only are we to build our Christian community, in verse 1, as we see building the Christian community, we also see that we're to build or let God guard our civil duties. We need to depend upon God in protection. Look at this in verse 1, part B. Unless the Lord guards the city, again, without, if without the Lord in guarding our city, we see this idea of being one who keeps watch over the urban area, is frivolously spying out at the city gates, is keeping watch over night after night and keeps awake. The idea here is that somebody who's characterized by a life that is constantly guarding what the Lord is not even in protecting in the first place. The word for guard and watchman is the exact same word in Hebrew, except guard describes the person and watchman describes the behavior. It's a participle ending in ing, and it's talking about this, a man who is guarding frivolously. He's described by a behavior that is maintaining security and safety from danger and what he can't bring to heaven. Psalm 130, verse 6, describes this for us. My soul awaits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. What are we guarding so closely, Christians? What keeps us up at night? The Bible reflects on many areas that we guard so closely that will end up being futile in the end. Our social lives our agricultural systems, living on the produce of land and energy, on trade and possessions of personal property and value. But all we see this to be keeping awake in vain if we don't bring the Lord in it with us. Why is it so pointless to stay awake in these efforts? We get a very good extra-biblical example of this from the history and the writings of it. And we see that there was, at that time, during the monarchy, in the kingdom of Judah, 
They would have light posts out in certain cities as they progressed downward towards Jerusalem. In the Jerusalem city, in the city of Jerusalem, in Lashish and Ezekah. And interestingly enough, we see that as they guarded the city and they created these physical ways to warn the city and guard it and protect it, long before they were already compromising in the idea of political areas. And for them, that was a spiritual issue. They were seeking alliances with ungodly cities. We get from one of the longest Hebrew texts discovered of the Israel monarchy, a political alliance between Judah and Egypt towards the end of the monarchy. And it shows that no matter what you can do physically to guard what's around you, if you're already spiritually compromised, you're without the Lord. The expression that's coming through this verse is the idea of beware of compromises spiritually for the sake of protecting what's physical. Solomon summarizes the idea behind guarding. We're responsible for our individual spiritual lives, not for the city we live in. David's charge told Solomon that in 1 Kings chapter 2, that David was to draw near to the Lord, verse 3, keep charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses. Are we keeping the Lord's charge? Are we in charge of what the Lord will do in our life? It reflects upon this in the idea of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 when he talks about guarding your steps. and We don't have time to read it right now, but verses 1 through 8 talk about guarding your steps. And a lot of it is about the speech and the promises that we have. Are we guarding what's most dear? Our vows to the Lord and our efforts on behalf of the Lord, are we keeping our promises? Are we guarding our spiritual promises to God? Our individual walks lead to spiritual security in God. And despite the state of the security of the city of David, we pray for the return of God's city in Zion. There's absolutely an application for us. We pray for the thousand-year millennial kingdom reign where the city of Zion will no longer compromise the lives, but they will cast them out. There will be peace in the city of David once again. There's a city told of in Pilgrim's Progress, and yell out the name if you know the city I'm about to mention. Vanity Fair. This was a city that so much effort and frivolous work was done, but in the end of all of it, it was said that it was filled with jugglings, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, rogues, and that of every kind. Does that sound familiar to us? We have so much around our city that's not worth protecting. Lustfulness, pleasures, delighting in all sorts of harlotry. The selling of bodies, silver. Souls, precious stones, but it's without the Lord. In every city where we live, we need to depend upon the Lord. And Solomon's saying, don't fill your life up with the preoccupying anxiety that the cities are dealing with. Instead, we need to follow the promises of faithfulness, obedience to God's provision. And we get this wrong sometimes as believers. Faithfulness is not simply something that people do. It's an act of God who inclines the hearts of the people to keep his commandments. That's from Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. 
Are you praying for God to incline your life towards him? Or are you trying to muster up faithfulness on your own effort? You're dependent upon the Spirit of God for that. How many of us are seeking security in the vain efforts of our cities, the highways, the grid, the schools, the government, the rise and falls? Just like the city of David, we must repent of that. It is our dependence in God in all times, in all cities, that we learn from the Israelites what secures our heart. We need a healthy perspective on God's providence as we seek to build a life depending upon Him. We need to pray for God to incline our hearts towards that obedience. He summarizes this in the end of verse 2 as he talks about cultivating, letting the Lord cultivate your work. Read with me verse 2. It is vain for you to rise up early and to retire late to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. I've often wondered why people brag about working long hours. And I believe it's to substantiate a work ethic that is giving them a sense of achievement, to justify the imbalance at the home life, to feel important. And there's much research that's been done on one who doesn't balance his work life. But we need to look no further than Scripture. It is vain for you to be a person who achieves so much in work yet doesn't achieve so much in a Christian life. Any early risers here to rise up early? It's not talking about a man who wakes up early to read the Bible or to do devotionals for his family, but it's talking about frivolously waking up early for work that is not building the kingdom of God. And this is given the idea that it is a continual effort of that, a lifestyle of anxious toil that causes one to get up and not only get up but enthusiastically for reasons that are unbiblical, vain efforts. You're enthusiastic about getting up for your work but not enthusiastic about the work of God. And we see that Absalom was a man just of this nature in his life. The third son of David in 2 Samuel 15 verse 2 says that Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king of judgment, Absalom would call him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Now why was he doing this? Was he being a good son, a good legacy? No. He used tireless efforts without the Lord's input in his attempts to gain favor over his father. There are over a hundred Bible verses of Absalom trying to kill his father. Are you rising early for unbiblical efforts? Are you retiring late for unbiblical efforts as we continue? The root of this word actually conveys a troubled traveler whose spirit has a hard time settling down at night to the point where he even needs a sedative to be able to rest from his anxious thoughts over work. It says late. Conveys the idea of the anxiety and vain efforts that's bringing you to the point of consistently staying up late. We often use the expression, there's not enough time in the day. Do you struggle with your schedule, taking many hours at night to get done your tasks and then need a dose of melatonin? Watching the French Open this week and Sitsipas lost to Carlos Alcaraz and he talked about the late nights from the tennis matches and the press conferences needing a melatonin and that melatonin was the reason why he was asleep his first two sets and ended up losing the match. 
We understand that we can't frivolously work too late at night. Reminded of a biblical counseling case that I had where a man was staying up till 6 a.m. playing video games. And family, if your son is doing that, take the door off the bedroom. He's not to be doing that to the point where, like my case was, arriving late to church. David knew that Solomon needed to understand there was a point of rest for a king who was starting off his life right. And that's why Solomon was told in his charge to make moments to sit at the throne. A king needs to sit restful, and a restless king brings a restless kingdom. We need to understand who stays awake for us. Psalm 121, verse 3, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God has used sleep to trouble kings, so he'll use it to trouble us as well. He troubled the king in Esther's time when a bad advisor told him to kill Mordecai. In chapter 6, he couldn't sleep And so he brought the book of records to him to bring the chronicles and read before him about those who had reported concerning other men in Israel. And he knew that what he was being advised to do was wrong. God will take our sleep from us if we're not going about his will. We need to trust in Yahweh to bring protection for our Christian work-life balance. For a Christian, there is no better lesson than to learn Rest is a practice of one's faith, to trust in the attributes of God. If you believe in the attributes of God, in God's sovereignty and providence, you will have plenty of rest. Are you staying awake for unbiblical reasons? Do you have a hard pillow? As the end of verse 2 starts to read, to eat the bread of painful labors. We want a conscience that's clear relating to a soft pillow, not a hard one as we see here, painful labors. This is the idea that you're constantly given a tough life, struggling to put food on the table, working is always tough, you can never get ahead, and God uses this detrimental reminder for you to depend on him more in your work, to cultivate dependence on him. It's not referring to the refusal of work we see in Proverbs 21, verse 25, but it's the idea that you're letting work be painful. You need to be a hard worker, but you don't need to be a painful worker. And I recently came across a study of John Pencabell from Stanford that was done in 2014, and he talks about this concept of work martyrs. And he says, many men are giving hundreds of hours over to their employer for free labor. He said, a man that works 70 hours was just as efficient as a man working 55 hours. The extra 15 hours proved to bring a life that was unproductive, that led to absenteeism, and that led to turnover. Are we workaholics, believers? And in ministry, this can be very the same as well. There's many conversations Ana Luisa and I have had, but this is one that she reminds me of the most. And I pray for your accountability in that area as well. And ever since Genesis 3, work has meant to be hard, but it's not meant to be painful. And our sleep reflects our theology of God. When we sleep, we give God the privilege and rights to cultivate the work for us, to give us the synapses in our mind to think rightly and efficiently. He says, for he gives to his beloved, even in his sleep. Beloved was a familiar term with Solomon 
In 2 Samuel 12, 24, he's given the name Jedidiah, the only person given that name. It means beloved of Yahweh. And we see in the parable of the seed in Mark 4 that we go to bed and we rise up and we see that the soil has been growing and sprouting and we don't know why. The Lord is the one who cultivated in the night. There's no occupation that is outside of God to carry the pain for you. There's never been a surgery that God hasn't sovereignly planned, a field that God hasn't surveyed. There's never been a spreadsheet outside of God's intellect. There's never been a microchip that God hasn't intelligently designed the science behind. But if we pointlessly pursue these things without the Lord, we will work painfully. Solomon talks about that futility of labor in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, specifically verses 18 through 23, if you want to look in your own time. But Solomon built a life and legacy that did lead to a pointless existence. God would redeem that pointless existence later, as we will see. But know your limits. Rest is an act of humility. And as we move on from depending on God in a Christian life, we want to ask the question, how do we depend on God, depend on God for a Christian legacy? In verses 3 through 5, he uses a concept that is literally familiar to us. Look with me at verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. How do we rely on God to provide a blessed legacy and not be ashamed? Well, we see first in verse 3 that children are a gift. We've got to see the reward of our legacy in a Christian home. And he says, pay attention, Santan Bible Church. Behold, we have to heed the familiar illustration that is built into the life of David, the life of Solomon, the life of Rehoboam, and make it be learning our, may we learn our lesson about the life we lead here today. Children are a gift of the Lord. The illustration here is that of family. I want to preface by saying this. Even though this is talking about fertility, I am aware that infertility is something that women deal with. Just notice here that says children are a gift of the Lord. They're not the only gift of the Lord. And the context of Solomon teaches that he was really after a gift that would be the succession line to the Redeemer. But for us in our lives, we have to understand there are many gifts. And if you're dealing with infertility as a believer, your Christian walk, there are many areas, especially infertility, that you can demonstrate depending upon God. Such were the cases of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Hannah in the Bible. And however, if you never have children, remember your service to the children of this church is a beautiful contribution to the legacy being built here in the heritage of Santan Bible Church and the families here. Thank you for your work this week in building that legacy. But for those who are fertile, who have had children, we should not neglect the reward, the valuable reward before us. Are we outside, outsourcing our discipleship and denying the gift? Alan quotes in his commentary, Children are the greatest enrichment to marriage. Believers would dare neglect or abuse such a gift from God. We are reminded after being in the foster care system, taking care of another person's gift for ten and a half months, and praying now that that child goes back 
that that mother would understand the gift that God gave her. That this is not her child, but a child of the Lord. And to not neglect that one day of her life. We pray for that, for his life. It's a fruit of the womb. It's fertile. It's valuable as a reward. Like fine fruit that was described of this word in the Old Testament, it's incredibly valuable for us. And I'm saddened to see a culture today, even a Christian culture at times, that sees pregnancy as a loss of individual autonomy. We're not to be Christians like that. Instead, we are to see that this is a way we can demonstrate kingdom advancement. We gain our heritage. And by the way, I'll just let you know, believers, that Muslims are having more children than us and Mormons are having more children than us. Not a sermon, just a thought. (laughs) But in our heritage, in our legacy, we are building defense and advancement for the kingdom of God. Have you thought about the children in this church that will advance 20, 30, 40 years down the road God's kingdom? The future deacons, elders, servants, pastors from this church that were here today and here this week at VBS. Kingdom builders. I'm reminded of a couple at one of my former churches who did not have a problem with infertility at all. But they said that they set aside having children for the sake of ministry serving the Lord more. Well, I'm here to say that's unbiblical. That is not a biblical concept whatsoever. That's actively denying the fruit of the womb. And I pray that we see children as a gift, not a grief. I pray that those who are infertile pray like Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and those who never have children invest in the legacy of the children here before you. What a beautiful concept. Come alongside the parents in that way and demonstrate that kind of legacy. Well, we want to understand not only the gift of children and depending upon God, but the goal of children depending upon God in verse 4 through 5. The goal. They're like hands, or sorry, (laughs) I hope they're not hands. They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. The arrows in the hand of a warrior is an illustration to show that you want a lot of ammunition. A warrior in the battlefield running out of ammunition would not be able to defend and advance what he prizes most. And we need to secure a legacy for our spiritual army to defend and advance the kingdom of God. Families wage war by investing in the legacy God gave them. The legacy defends them in the physical battles of war and also litigation at the city gates, but also in spiritual battles of faith. Sons and daughters, can your parents count on your word in public? Can they count on your life at school to be a defense for the kingdom of God? says here, so are the children of one's youth. What's he getting about by the idea of Youth. Well, the idea is youthful vigorance. He's not talking about one age. It's actually in the plural. He's talking about a stage of life that God gives fertility to families. And he's saying this, be active participants of your child's life in that stage he gives you. Don't be off sitting on the couch too much, but be an active participant in the development of their life. It doesn't say of old age here, a man is sitting on the couch, not involved in the child's discipleship. What are you doing to advance your child in their legacy? 
Don't waste your participation. In a week's time, we'll be in Albania and we'll be going over biblical parenting lessons. Thankfully, from Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, they translated this book in Albanian, Parenting for Life. And the elders of Grace Community Church say this about how we come alongside participating in our children. We admonish them, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, and we train them, Proverbs 22, 6. How? We do this through example. In life situations, through their curiosity by questions and answers, and through formal teaching times in the home and church. And what do we teach them? First, to fear God. Our children need to know his attributes. And one of the attributes is sleep. Sorry, sleep provides for his providence and sovereignty to display in our life. We need to have them know how to worship God and please God. And secondly, they need to know how to submit and obey. Do our children submit to parents? Do they submit to teachers? Do they submit to government? Do they submit to church and to employers? How and what we do in the home is building a legacy for when we're not here. And he ends with this idea in verse 5. That if we don't waste our life leading to a pointless existence, seeking meaning in our life, we'll be blessed. Look at this. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. He's talking about letting God be a part of the guidance in our children's lives. The quiver is where they would carry the arrows and it would guide the, through battle. And as we use the quiver of God's, of depending upon God in our children's life, He is providentially acting upon each one of their souls. This is saying really actually, oh, the blessedness of the man whose quiver is full of them, who's divinely enabled by God's favor. W. Graham Scroge says of this, in the time of Solomon, when he wrote this text, children were a direct blessing of divine favor from God, and to not have them would have been a curse upon the family. He's talking about that secession line to the Redeemer. And this celebrates the benefit of the relationship we have with God in the home as we build the legacy. David charged Solomon to leave this kind of legacy. And we don't want to let our lives build a rubbish of a legacy like Solomon's. We'll talk about the redemption of that legacy in a moment. But if our quiver is full, God is going to provide and providentially guide us if we're depending upon him. And we won't be ashamed. What is this talking about? This is talking about a family that is able to see their children, those who go in the presence of the public on their behalf, and be proud of the message that they speak on their behalf. Having a full quiver meant a full representation for a public matters. A father desired to send his legacy on his behalf. The illustration that's built here is from the idea of the gates, the public hearings, the places where litigation would have been done in the early hours, and he would send his children on his behalf. And there would be rooms where the children would speak, and they didn't want to be like Absalom that gave off shady comments towards their family where you would be ashamed. You wanted to be able to trust what your kids would say about you. Children, again, can your, can your parents depend on, upon your word for them in public. And when they're gone, will you continue to advance the kingdom of God? 
Solomon is teaching the lesson he learned from his father that a legacy under God is a defense for God and their honor. Their father can arrive late and trust what their sons said is not in vain, but of Christian truth and Christian character. Dr. Barrick says this, A city is only as strong and secure as the families within its walls. Is your family advancing the kingdom of God through its legacy? Can you depend upon your children? If not, have a conversation with them. Pray for God's protection and guidance in that. We ultimately end this with the idea at Ruth chapter 4. Even though there was rubble from David, rubble from Solomon, rubble from Rehoboam, the rubble would be redeemed through Boaz, the kinsman redeemer who said in Ruth 4 verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name be become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old ways. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than the seven sons has given birth to him. Well, I stand here today to tell you that there was a Savior born in the city of David. And that Savior reigns today to continue to build his legacy. It was the only begotten legacy of God in whom we can trust and depend upon for our life and for our legacy. Are you trusting in the one who was sinless upon earth? Or are you trusting in your efforts? Because you're totally depraved before God. And without God, you will have a pointless existence, a home that will end with possibly tons of possessions, but totally pointless in the eyes of God. Do you trust in that only begotten legacy that was redeemed through Boaz and was giving a lineage to the Redeemer that we can now place our trust and faith in today? Remember this. Losing God's providence in the family, in your home, always begins with everyday life in each individual life of the believer. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we do understand your will, your sovereignty and providence in our life and in our legacy. I pray that nobody wastes their life. First, from not believing and trusting in the Lord, and also for the believers who don't depend upon you in life and in our legacy. In your name we pray. Amen.